I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm sitting here with uh, Perry Ousting, who's the CEO of Hasselblad. I'm in Gothenburg at their headquarters. Uh, and it's amazing. I'm surrounded by all of these classic cameras and pictures from the moon. Uh, Perry, it's great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for being here, Mike. It's been some while. <laughs> yeah. It's been somewhat. Last time I think I saw you, we were in Stockholm uh, at, a, at a dinner at a EQT. That's funny. Again, Sweden. Again, <laughs> yeah, Sweden. also yeah. Sweden. I, I just spoke at the conference and yeah. I think back then you were the CEO of Virtu. Yeah, I was at that time the CEO for Virtu which was an interesting journey. I yeah. joined there at the beginning of 2009, when it was still owned uh, 100% by Nokia. Yeah. Uh, so it was a very disruptive time, of course, beginning of 2009, uh, Apple, uh, iOS, uh, Symbian, uh, Android coming a bit later. Yeah. So in that disruptive time to be the manager of an uh, yeah, so-called uh, uh, luxury mobile phone brand, that was an interesting period of time. We'll definitely come back to that. I, I, you know, one of the extraordinary things about your background is I've realized you've actually been present or run some of my favorite brands. <laughs> Thank you. You were at Prada, uh, yeah. you know, you were at uh, Virtu, now Hasselblad, and you've yeah. also been involved with Shambhala Jewels. So. Yeah. yeah, it's been, uh, it's, like I said. It I think you've got very good taste. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was lucky maybe to, uh, to be able and to be fortunate to be uh, giving a contribution to these brands. Of course, at Prada, I was uh, responsible for a region. I was not in the same position as I was with Virtu or here with Hasselblad, uh, where I was both in the CEO position and I'm a Chambala, I'm a, a board member, a non-executive board member, but it's uh, it's been always a great fun to work with great brands uh, that have very clear identity. And I think uh, bringing that alive or being part of bringing it alive, better to say, is so much fun. You, you started off actually as a jeweler, right? A metal and goldsmith. Yes, yes. My background is a bit uh, awkward, so no MBA study. Uh, it's probably an advantage. <laughs> I don't <laughs> These know. Days, I sometimes an advantage, sometimes maybe a disadvantage. But in a way, it's also uh, it was an interesting journey. When I was 19, in, uh, in born in the Netherlands, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, I started to study in the Art Academy. So there's an Art Academy in the Netherlands, uh, which is specialized in gold and silversmithing. And it looked, yeah, kind of fun to me. And it was really the only thing. I was not thinking about career. I was not thinking about what my future going to bring. I think it was way too, too, too young for that. But I did that, and four years was that. Uh, then uh, worked actually three years as a gold and silversmith one year and a half in Canada in a place called Chatham, Ontario, yeah, uh, which was a kind of Dutch immigrant city in uh, between Toronto and Detroit. Uh, and then one year and a half I was working for a Californian jeweler who had two stores, one in Aptos, uh, so Monterey Bay area, and uh, one in Carmel. Uh, we are still great friends, by the way, uh, Markery, as his name is, and I was the one that sat behind the bench. Um, being behind the bench is a great, I mean, it's craftsmanship in a way, uh, making high-end jewelry. So I was not bending silver threads, it was high-end jewelry. Um, but 
at the time, although I enjoy the profession, in this uh, work, you either have the talent, one out of a million, that you could make it by yourself, or you need to have the financial backing to say, hey, I can start by myself. Now, I was an okay gold and silver smith, <laughs> but I was not that one out of a million talent, nor did I have the financial backing. And why that was important? Because being a gold and silversmith, at least in my time, at least in my circumstances, it was not enough to live. It was not enough to die. So then I said, look, uh, I have so many more interests. I'm still so young and uh, made the decision to stop and made a travel around the world, stayed away for one year on two and a half thousand dollars. How old were you? I was about... I'm counting back, so 19 plus 4, I was about 24. This is the 80s? Uh, 24 was, yeah, was yeah. 80, was 84, <coughs> 85, yeah, something <laughs> like that. And I traveled around the world, backpacked, the, the usual thing. Uh, went from California to Hawaii, to Australia, to Southeast Asia, to India. And in those days, no credit card, no mobile phone with American Express Traveler checks going around the world and uh, keeping communication with my parents who lived in, of course, in the Netherlands through um, letters. Yeah, so post restante, you brought it to the GPO, the general post office, and that's where I picked up the mail. And that's how we kept in touch and came back to Europe after one year. And then I said, okay, met a girl actually in Thailand who was German. And I had no job, no something laid out for me. And I stayed in touch with her and we fell in love. And then I moved to Munich, actually. And actually, I had no money to actually move to home. So I actually hitchhiked to <laughs> Munich and came to Munich. And actually, then after some odd jobs as well to get started, and I joined uh, a jeweler. So going back in my trade, but then more in sales. And in uh, 88, 89, actually, I joined Bulgari, huh. first in sales. So I was a salesperson in the, in the Munich store. Then they sent me after a very short while. I said, hey, that guy seems to be yeah, doing okay. I was one of the youngest at that time uh, in Bulgari, a very traditional, you know, high-end jeweler where apparently through the way you look, you gain seniority. So I had to talk more than the ones that, you know, had that look of seniority. And I moved to, uh, they sent me on a mission to go to Dusseldorf uh, with two cases of jewelry and a so-called fattorino. And a fattorino is kind of your assistant, yeah, the man with the golden buttons who was standing next to you when you did that sales procedure. And they sent me to Dusseldorf into a room of a luxury hotel, which is called Breidenbacher Hof. They said, okay, you start there. And if you are doing well, you can open a store. And I mean, this was really beginning stages of Bulgari. I mean, there were only 13 stores at the time, Bulgari. There was, really? no, there was no perfume. There was no watch just, distribution. Yeah. There was just a slight, but there was only own retail. Average price was, of course, much higher as it is now. I mean, it was still in the beginning stages of this democratization of luxury. And they sent me to Dusseldorf, me and my two suitcases, no marketing budget, that I just had a few hundred German marks at the time that I could advertise in the local newspaper that Bulgaria is now by appointment only in Hotel Breidenbachenhof. And actually that went really well. Uh, so we're talking 1990 around that period and it went uh, really well. 
and it's thought, hey, you proved success. Uh, so now it's a matter that you open uh, a store. So I did open the store, hired the staff, again, was successful. And yeah, from one step to the other step, uh, at the end, I became managing director for North and Eastern Europe, where a lot of things happened. Of course, we opened Russia, we went into distribution, the accessory line came in. And, and this, this was really the, the global boom in luxury around this. This was this whole democratization that happened, yeah. of course, in both diversification of your product lines, as well into the expansion of your... Geographies, China, airports. Yeah, in your channel and geography expansion, hmm. uh, which was nice about Bulgaria. I stayed 10 years with Bulgari. Which was nice about Bulgari is that it was a great team, and it's strongly believed. And after now, when now been more than 26, 27 years in luxury, or let's call it great brands, is that it's always about the combination of people. Mm. So the combination of people at Bulgari at that time was at the right time, the right combination of people. Uh, under the supervision of Mr. Francesco Trapani, who's been a fantastic leader. But there were other great members like Gianluca Pozzetti, like Massimo Macchi, like there were some really great executives. And it's not name dropping of just giving the say, but it was the combination of these people mm. and that you're able to learn so much of them. I never thought about career. I never thought about, I need to do this now, I need to do that, and I need to use my elbows. No, it just came naturally. And and working hard and pick and learning from great people that you know that I stayed 10 years with Bulgari and it was an incredible great journey what, what, it sort of makes sense now when you look at how you were there at the global expansion of luxury that you know when you ended up at uh, you know at the birth of Virtu from Nokia yeah. you know around that time around two years post the launch of the first iPhone yeah what was going on in their minds that they thought they could hitch yeah. The kind of the global boom in luxury with technology. Yeah. Because you, you must have been there at that sort of that moment of conception. Yeah. Well, the conception was done way before me. So I, that was uh, at that time was a small group at Nokia. Yeah. That Nokia was very successful. I'm going back now uh, in the time that I think Virtu's first start of IT. So was that like 2003? Or? No. It was, I mean, they started three years before they launched the first product. So it was in 19... 98, 1999, right. when they started. And Nokia the back then, I remember, was the king of phones. I mean, that was the market leader, yeah. it was successful, uh, was dropping off a lot of cash. Uh, so, very cash rich company, so there was a lot of investment po potential. And uh, the chief designer, Frank Noble, with a, with a <laughs> like group, Apple is today, right? <laughs> with Apple is today in a much, even a much bigger, right. bigger size than at that time. But Nokia was 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 cash rich, and there was this room for adventure. There was a room for experience, and the chief designer, together with some other people of Nokia, said, "Hey, there is something like a luxury." Uh, accessory, something that's always with you, and why would the rules of luxury not apply to something that is highly visible and always with you? Mm. From a philosophy point of view, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, to tell you the truth, when I was uh, asked to meet the executives at uh, at Vertu, which was at the end of 2008, and we went through this whole process and interviewing process. I was very resistant at first because, uh, yeah, it had kind of this this feeling and say, okay, who needs that? What is this? Uh, you know, it's besides besides shakes and oligarchs. 
Exactly. I mean, sometimes it was said, okay, this is for people with more, more, more money than sense. I mean, this was sometimes the quotes. Uh, on the other side, and, and I had a very similar first pre-idea about that as well. So I, I prefer to, no way, no. And it was not because any kind of snobbism or any kind of thing, but I went because uh, I thought I was still intrigued by it because it was so unique, it was so different. Mm. And I came to London and came to, and came to Hampshire, where the headquarters of Earth were, and and actually I was I was very intrigued by the passion of the people. I was very intrigued that this actually was very authentic, so it was really made in Hampshire. Uh, they had a full R and D team. They had a full production setup. It was each phone made by hand. It was just not a marketing story. That was one thing that attracted to me. And the second thing, I started to more think about the philosophy in terms of what is the luxury definition. So the philosophy of luxury definition, because we was like say, oh, for a phone it cannot be luxury. Yeah, for a handbag it can. But actually, yeah, because there's this, this, this many discussion, okay, luxury should stay. And, and some people in watch brands, they say it should stay for the next generations. But luxury is also a three-star meal. Luxury is staying at a beautiful resort, a five-star luxury hotel. Right. It's the experience is, as well. Which, which is the experience. It's not something I give that night that I stayed in that five-star luxury hotel, which I still remember, to my kids hmm. or to my next generation. So luxury definition is, is truly an experience. It's truly also perception, but it's not defined by just it is staying for a long time. Hmm. Yeah, And an experience can stay, but a virtue can stay. So there's no, if you buy a fashion collection and you buy a spring summer collection and it is in for the season, but the fall winter has different colors. Uh, the next spring summer has different colors or materials or cuts or profiles. So in that sense, I thought the philosophy of Virtus is actually not different than any other category. And that was interesting because on one side you're in this disruption, hmm. technology disruption. The other side you're in new technology. And now how can you combine those luxury elements that should be relevant to the technology, but not based and, and, and on... This is when you started bringing in the concierge and, and all the luxury services as part of the handset proposition. Absolutely. I mean, the yeah. services, because what is more relevant than if you would have an American Express card? Yes, you can call your concierge or you can uh, tweet your concierge or you, however you want to communicate it. But where is it more integrated? is in the mobile device, because that's where it's all in there, besides the services. But think about, you know, so look at Apple Pay now. Look at also the integration for other services that could have been possible. The great opportunity I see with Virtu is that those services and this uniqueness and that combination you could combine because certain, and then of course the differentiation compared to the mass players, yeah, yeah is something where could you make the difference? Where could you spend more money on? That doesn't make sense for the mass. You know what's extraordinary is that I, I had a virtual handset for many years, and you know, finally I gave in and, and bought an iPhone. But I still use the virtual services. Yeah. So, so for me, the virtual brand has always actually been about the concierge, which yeah. I continue to use even though the hardware's yeah. gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think it's also. I mean, we can talk long. What is the success? I mean, of course, I left in the middle of thirteen. So I was not part now where we are, where Virtu is today. I have a high respect for Virtu and uh, especially the people because, I mean, that's of yeah. course always where companies are built on. Uh, but our strategy at that time is saying, how can we build those three circles together? What were the circles? The circle was the design element, 
meaning that uniqueness, the material, that's all in the design uh, circle. Then you have the technology, because you need to be par or better in certain parts of the technology. Now, in the beginning stage, that was a bit challenging, because we all know that Symbian, compared to iOS and then Android came later, was challenging. Yeah. But then also, what are your services? Yeah. So we had like the three circles that were not equal, but we wanted to have the total experience should be great technology, great uniqueness, craftsmanship, design, let's call it all in that bubble, and then the last one is services. And that total center point should have been the virtual experience. And mm -hmm. that was always the strategy, that was always what we were striving for. Of course, coming from where Virta was coming when I joined, which was Nokia, which was Symbian, which was <laughs> challenges, yeah, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that journey was still great that we were able to manage because when I joined the company was now, yeah, I think 500 people. And when I left was 1000 people. So we really expanded. I think we have built the brand. We did some great collaborations and partnerships. Mm. Well, from a, I mean, we did a partnership with uh, Smile Train, for example, on the charity part, which gives us also an opportunity to bring on the more, you know, slash entry price level, whatever, you know, that means, but at least from our yeah, relative comparison with the price entry level, we did a great collaboration with Lapo, Lapo Elcom in Italy. Yeah. Uh, we did some other design and some craftsmanship with the Japanese, uh, Mr. Morosan-san, etc., etc. So those partnerships and this uniqueness was great exploration of that design and proposition part. Technology-wise, well, of course, the change to Android was a big step. Services-wise, I think that could have been done a bit more, but we went in services like security, we went in services like offers, we went in services like how can you bring that concierge model also mm. relevant to the smartphone. So I think that was also very important. But it was a great journey. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think I'm very proud. Uh, well, one of the things I, I think is interesting now yeah. that you're at Hasselblad is that, and I've seen you say this in interviews, that you actually don't see Hasselblad as a luxury brand. And, and you, you've, you've made that distinction, which, which is quite an interesting sort of departure. Yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you unpack yeah. that a little bit? Because I. Well, I think the world, the, I mean, philosophy, uh, um, I think the world luxury is, has changed quite significantly. I mean, if I go back in my from old days. From the Bulgari days. From the Bulgari <laughs> days, which was certainly, you know, that, that status seeker and all of those other elements that came with luxury and the democratization, because that whole exploration of luxury went then just, you know, okay, we have it in Rome, we have it in Paris, we have it in Milan. We have it in London, we have it in New York. Now you went into a much wider democratization, wider audience, especially the top middle class, I mean, aspirational right. customers. But I think luxury has changed. Uh, has changed in the sense, what's the meaning for luxury? For Hasselblad, I think it's not a luxury brand in a traditional sense, what people perceive with luxury, yeah, because it's not me to decide what's the right definition of luxury. It has elements in the sense that it has like a long heritage and provenance and high craftsmanship, yeah. but, yeah. but yeah. It's, it's different in, in its orientation towards performance, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, look, the way I don't want to use the word luxury is because I think a lot of people think about luxury is like limited in numbers, it's only craftsmanship, mm. uh, it's only expensive materials, uh, and You're not going to put diamonds on the X1D? There's no diamonds. <laughs> the X1D is made out of solid aluminium. So I think we are a premium brand because why we are a premium brand is we are serving that top-end photographer that wants his gear, his tool, needs to perform 
according to his requirements that he can expand his creativity uh, and we are quite premium and positioned in that and as you see that through our ambassadors and also in our customers who are using Hasselblad not only on the uh, on the H system but also now coming up on the X1D and that's premium that's not luxury you know in my opinion whatever then the final word and the verdict is of what is today's luxury for me luxury is time for me personally is luxury is time and how i spend quality of time yeah. and with who and where and in which circumstances i think that's for me the definition I, i've of always been a big fan of has black cameras i mean I, I i i was a photographer for a while and i actually trained on a 500 cm the old v series in, yeah. in the studio and uh i had a number of models over the year and i I think it's this. One of the things that's really interesting that's happening in the world now is that you have these very traditional, performance, precision-driven European brands, which are now in this globalized world where you need mass production, yeah. are partnering up with Chinese companies. Yeah. And I think you know you recently took an investment from uh, DJI, yeah. uh, which is the the Chinese drone manufacturer, yeah. which is you know on face value an unlikely combination, but. When, when you look at it more and you realize how the world is changing and yeah. their expertise in operations and production, you know, it starts to make a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. From a philosophy point of view, it's actually not so far-fetched. I mean, Hasselblad was the first brand on the moon, yeah, the first camera on the moon yeah. in 1969. And the Chinese themselves are probably going to go to the moon next. And, and <laughs> drone. So we've been up in the air, let's put yeah. it this way. No, but I think it's uh, it was great that DJI uh, joined the... The, the group and uh, the brand. I think it's uh, uh, what I've learned is always what we discussed before is always the combination of people and the combination of uh, brain power and the combination of talents. And if you can marriage that well together, uh, you're always stronger because I mean, success of companies, if it's if you look at Gucci in that time, it's, it was Domenico de Sol, it was Tom Ford. If you look at Prada, Mutual Prada and Patrizio Vitelli, I think also even an Apple, although of course Steve Jobs is a unique person and you know you don't come across that many people like that. But I think also the combination with Wozniak with the combination of Tim Cook that had all of these talents coming right. together. So it's, it, it, it's personality driven. It's And talent driven. So yeah. if you have the right talent. So here it's of course at Hasselblad here in Göteborg, we have 75 years, so we have a very long-lasting uh, or a staff that sometimes is 30, 40 years with the company. So there's a lot of experience in optical quality. There's a lot of experience in mechanics. There's a lot of experience in optics and software. And then at the other side, you have a DJI side, which is a disruptive technology, uh, which great engineers, yeah, bit more software driven than, than, than in our side, but also some great talent. Of course, scale wise, much bigger than us, hmm. uh, generation wise, younger than us. So how that could work together that we can combine some of these resources, whereby at the same time, or at the same time, that we keep, of course, each brand very separately. So DJI is DJI. They have a direction to go. That's a monobrand direction, and the same as Hasselblad, and that's a monobrand. So brand no direction. Hasselblad drone products in the near future. No Hasselblad drone. <laughs> I think any kind of proposition or any pro, uh, you know partnership would be great to look at, as long as it's authentic and if it's a true value proposition. I mean, yeah. just putting a name on a logo, and that's absolutely not uh, the direction the way we want to see this partnership. We're seeing more and more of these Chinese, 
you know, even Shenzhen ecosystem emerged brands, uh, yeah. not just DJI, but, you know, Xiaomi and, and, yeah. and others. You know, and Xiaomi just announced an amazing product design by Philip Stark just yeah. you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. What it, and I think for, for people from the outside, it's hard for them to get a sense of the cultural orientation of these new Chinese companies. Yeah. Uh, but you've interacted with them. What, what, what are they like? Like, how do they see the world? Uh, what is it? What is their approach to innovation and how do you feel it's different to, oh. to the West? Well, if, two things. First of all, I think uh, you mentioned Xiaomi. I think Xiaomi is still a very local brand, hmm. whereby DJI is a global brand. I mean, they really have a, a good global representation of their brand uh, across the different continents. I think the difference between, I think, first of all, I, what, what I've noticed is incredible drive, yeah, drive to success, China. Uh, speed uh, very quick so uh, it comes probably with the first point uh, I think um, of course it's a younger demographic yeah uh, coming from a culture for drive and success so I think it's m much more competitive um, people from the West assume that Chinese technology is just copying others, but really, no. it's really moved way past that. Oh hasn't no! It? I mean, the world Shenzhen ecosystem is not for nothing. I mean, when I was still in the days at uh, Virtu and Nokia, I mean, they were making in Shenzhen phones at those days. You know, with four different SIM cards. I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, these uh, Sunzai. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was amazing yeah. what the development and what the processes and and the quickness and. The intelligence, of course, of course, the pool of talent is one thing. I think the the drive is one thing. The speed, therefore, is linked maybe with that, uh, and the generation and the demographics uh, combined with that. I think that is also what is is what what I see is happening with 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 China is compared to because you know 10, 15 years ago we called that emerging market, yeah. But uh, if you compare that emerging market, for example, to uh, Russia, or you compare that to um, uh, to India or, 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 or countries like that, I think, first of all, how wealth has been generated in China is very different compared to those countries. How it had evolved and changed is very different than those countries, Yeah, where the wealth came from the top. This was much more democratic wealth on one side, so much more wider spread. On top of that, it's less dependent on some of the key metropolitan cities. I mean, if you look at Russia, you have Moscow and you have Moscow, yeah, mm. or a little bit then St. Petersburg. So if you look then in the size and scale of metropolitan cities and therefore, you know, a broader base of talent. And then also how that generation had, you know, we talked about luxury or premium, have experienced luxury or premium in a much different way. And is much more, I think there's not any more a Chinese consumer or a Western consumer. There's a much more global consumer also because of the timing when that so-called emerging market was developing. Because the timing is very different in those days when, let's say, that Russian luxury premium customer was coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Besides then, how the wealth has grown in these countries. So I think China is very, very interesting um, the way I see how to run a brand and the way how to position a brand. There is no way we should do it differently in China. And there's no way we should do it differently in the Western world. Hmm. There, of course, you have some local adaptations, you have some local customs that you have to have. And that you are going to be uh, part of a local community, absolutely. But you still have this, that customer today in Shenzhen. What is, the, what is different that drives him to buy compared to the customer in New York? And that is not different anymore. 
from mm. a high-end from a from a from a high-end view or a helicopter view, if you say. When you look at the the future of Hasselblad and future photography in general, it, it feels like we are all taking and consuming more images than ever. But yeah. increasingly, they're driven from phones. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you know, whatever the future of photography, even for professionals, is it has to touch on smartphones in some way. Yeah. How do you? I mean, how do you see like the future of these standalone devices? Well, I think it's uh, when new technologies like uh, yeah, imaging at a smartphone is is amazing. It will further grow and will further improve to a certain extent, of course, because I mean there are the law of physics. Physics, right? So it's limited by optics. You know, I mean it? the optics, it's it's there. And sensor uh, size, yeah. That till so far, I haven't seen any development that that has changed. So this, those physics are, are kind of sad. So that's one thing. The second thing is that in photography, I think what's going to happen and what is happening already partly is saying, okay, you either have that top end and then you have the smartphone. Yeah. Right. So that whole middle part yeah, is what is the proposition that you still would use a camera. The camera needs to be significantly better than your mobile phone, otherwise there's no reason to use it. Right. And as the phones are getting better, that 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 whole middle part is 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 going to be challenged and challenged and challenged going forward. What is good about Hasselblad is on the one side, so we are in that top part. So if you take a <laughs> hundred megapixel sensor, you're the, you're the F1 supercar, and the smartphone's the Prius, right? <laughs> yeah. But what we want to do is making that F1 uh, available for more people. And if you stay within that range and you are not building your business model that you have to have five factories running 24-7, then that can be successful if that's what you're going for. And we have that experience and think we are well established in that part because once you are established on the top, which is in our case the professional photographers and the users that are using our, our equipment and our products, then if you make that one little step down and you call that the so-called prosumer and that's what we try to attract of course with the x1d which is then the dedicated amateur the semi-professional and the enthusiast alike is then if you have them use that that's of course a product with a 50 megapixel sensor a world of difference compared to a mobile phone <laughs> what is interesting as you say that more people are taking pictures i think there's 1.2 1.3 billion pictures uploaded per day through social media that visualization what, uh, what, what what's happening is that more people are expressing the visualization through photography or video, through the different means of social media and, and other other portals, is that people are producing so much that they're coming back again and say, okay, from what I produce, actually, I want to explore that because actually I did some pretty good shots. Now, how can I come to the next level? And that is interesting to see that what how many people that would be, how is that from a generation going to be. And I have no studies or I have no, uh, it's very purely based on anecdotes and some personal experience, but I see there's a younger generation coming back to photography who want to express their creativity because they have been just growing up with visualization. And I think that's an interesting part. And that's what we as Hasselblad really want to stimulate by being more involved with the schools, the schools of photography, uh, by lending them gear. We just did the master's competition, for example, in 2000, uh, in this year, where we announced the winners of which five were under 30 and younger. So, and that's something we would like to stimulate because it's an expression of creativity, of something of the basic starting of visualization, but then saying, okay, I can do these and these things with my mobile photography, and then I can do these and these things 
with my uh, with my top end photographer. Perry, it's been wonderful seeing you again. Uh, it's great to uh, hear from you, and of course, to hear that Hasselblad is back. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for being here in Göteborg. And by the way, outside we have sun. Uh, thanks, Mike, for being here. Thank you. Yeah, great. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.